If everyone can rise with me, we'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the ESV. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Lynn, uh, for reading scripture this morning, and we are in 2 Timothy chapter number 2, 2 Timothy 2, as we are uh, just looking at a few different messages these first couple weeks, uh, I encourage you to make plans two weeks from today. Uh, two weeks from today, we start our new uh, sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Galatians, uh, called Gospel Rooted Living. Uh, this is a uh, a book that uh, I've been me wanting to study, and I felt the Lord leading it uh, this next season. So I encourage you to make uh, plans to be a part of that gospel rooting living, and that'll start uh, two weeks, because next week we have a guest speaker, and then we'll uh, kick it off uh, there two weeks from, from today. Second Timothy chapter number two, uh, I'm currently in my 16th year of teaching, and with the exception of really just one year, I've taught Bible uh, every single year. Uh, I love teaching Bible. I, I especially love teaching uh, Bible stories to, to young people. Uh, I can remember uh, teaching a Bible survey class to junior high students, uh, and it was amazing to me, Steve and I were talking this weekend about it, uh, how much I love teaching and how much I realize kids that just don't know certain things about the Bible. Uh, I love telling the Old Testament stories of faith, um, uh, especially the ones that uh, not many people remember. Uh, I love questioning kids and seeing their faces when I show them that, yeah, animals do talk in the Bible, or there's left-handed people in the Bible. Uh, I love showing them verses that raise more questions than answers. Uh, for example, uh, there's one in Judges, chapter 3. It's the last verse of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 is about Ehud. Ehud's the left-handed guy that stabbed the really fat guy. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, what? Yeah, read that chapter. It's great. Uh, the last verse of this chapter is another judge, Shamgar. Uh, he, he's mentioned here, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. An ox goad is really a sharp, pointy stick. Okay, It was used to kind of prod the ox to make sure they didn't uh, go one way or the other. That's the only verse of Shamgar. Like, that's it. And I don't know about you, but I have more questions than answers here. Because how in the world do you kill 600 people with a sharp stick? Are they attacking all at one time? Because if that's the case, the Philistines were really not that great of soldiers. But <laughs> you're dying with a sharp stick. Like, there's so many questions. I mean, did he have, like, special abilities? What in the world? How long did he judge Israel? We don't know. So I love doing that. I love finding little things. Uh, I love asking them fast questions. 
along the way, you know, like, hey, name this, name this, name this, and I get them all caught up, you know, and I'm like, hey, hey, name, th- name this, who did the this, and who did that, and how many animals did Moses take on the ark? Two of every kind. No, 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 Moses didn't take anybody on the ark. <laughs> Noah put the animals on, and then you ask him, how many animals did Noah put on the ark? Two of every kind. Well, no, because there's actually two of all the unclean animals and seven or 14 of all the clean animals. Wait, what? You don't believe me? Read it. I'm telling you, reading the Bible can get you a lot of information. Uh, I love asking them who, who wrote things. Like, who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew. Who wrote the book of Mark? Mark. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of John? John. Who wrote the book of Acts? Acts. No. Luke. Who wrote the book of Timothy? And it never fails. I get two or three of them caught off guard. Timothy. No. Timothy did not write the book of Timothy. Uh, if you know anything about the Bible, Paul wrote the book of Timothy. Um, excuse me. He wrote two letters to Timothy, actually. Uh, we actually have them called First and Second Timothy. Uh, a lot of the books of the New Testament are letters, and they are written, many of them, by Paul. Uh, some of them are to churches, like uh, Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus, and Colossians are written to the people at Colossae, and the Corinthians are written to the people at Corinth. See, it's really easy, guys. I mean, it's simple. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not teaching you a class today, but it's just, I mean, and I understand people can get confused. This morning, we're actually in the second book of Timothy, um, This letter is written from Paul to Timothy. Uh, This is a personal letter in the sense of he's not writing it to a a church. He's writing it to an individual, uh, this guy named Timothy. Uh, Bible scholars believe that this is most likely Paul's last letter because of the way he finishes the letter. Uh, they, they date the letter shortly before his execution, uh, sometime in the uh, late 60s, early 70s AD. Uh, and so as we read this letter, there are some things that we notice about Timothy, or excuse me, about Paul, and as he is kind of like passing the torch to Timothy, as he finishes his journey, we have the famous verse in, in the end of the verse, uh, into the book where he says, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. Uh, and so this uh, kind of concluding letter of Paul is still important for us, even though we're not necessarily saying we're going to die next week. Uh, last week we talked about new beginnings, but this one really, I think, is a really good book about uh, continuing on and pressing on. So this morning I wanted to study this particular section to follow it with what we talked about last week, with new beginnings. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you from, uh, that you have given us uh, this book from cover to cover to give us uh, instructions on how to live and how to walk with you, how to remain faithful, how to, uh, to uh, cast aside sin, how to live uh, victorious, how to live free uh, in your precious uh, holy uh, son's name. Lord, we look forward to the day of your return, but God, that day has not happened yet, and until it does, I pray that each one of us would uh, determine within our hearts, Lord, to walk faithfully with you. We love you, and we praise you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, we we were way back in the Old Testament. We were in the book of Ezra, and we saw the children of Israel uh, returning to the promised land, and then they were starting to rebuild the temple. And and the book of Ezra was written to show that, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the altar. It started with the altar, and then uh, there was this rebuilding of the building itself. And then there's also, if you read the book of Ezra, this kind of uh, spiritual rebuilding uh, of the people. 
And so we saw last week Joshua, Zerubbabel, uh, taking on the task and the Jews gathering in Jerusalem. Uh, We talked about how the the foundation was laid and that we as God's people have this ability as well as we start a new year to begin anew, to begin with God. And no matter how last year went, uh, this year can be a great uh, new year, new beginning. And of course, how do we do that? Uh, we saw last week that you, you, it requires courage to stand together. It requires giving of our resources. It requires working in unity. All those things that we studied last week. And this week, we're continuing that same kind of idea of walking with God and how we can, and the title of the message is Disciplines of a Disciple. How can we develop disciplines that will bring us to maturity in the way that we walk? Paul writes this to Timothy, and Timothy is this, this young guy. Uh, he follows Paul. He was placed as, in church history, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a while, toward the end of Paul's life. Uh, Timothy helped Paul write several of the letters during his missionary journey. Uh, he was kind of a, Paul was kind of a mentor towards Timothy. Uh, over in Philippians 2, Paul says this about Timothy. Uh, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Notice, for I have no one like him. Wow, what a description. Like the, the, the Apostle Paul, someone that we considered a great person of faith, describes Timothy as being so unique that there's no one like him. Uh, and then he, he continues on. Uh, over in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews actually mentions Timothy and says that our brother Timothy has been released Uh, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Uh, At some point, apparently, Timothy gets imprisoned uh, for a time uh, because it talks about him being released. Um, There's some that we know about Timothy, some things we don't know about Timothy. Uh, We know about Timothy uh, from Paul's letters that he had a mother who who was a servant of the Lord and a grandmother, uh, which we'll talk about here in a few moments. Uh, Paul writes two letters to him, and now we're here, and I just want to see a couple of things from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, about some disciplines, about some steps, practically speaking, that we can face, that we can uh, put within us and commit to do and to to strengthen our walk uh, with Christ. Let's begin with verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As we enter chapter 2, Paul says, first of all, be strengthened. The first thing that we should realize, the first discipline that we have as a disciple is that we should rely on God's goodness and grace. God's goodness and grace. And he says, be strengthened in grace. At this time, Paul talks about the fact that people in Asia, as you look at the previous chapter, actually, in verse 15, he talks about that the people of Asia were deserting him, that there's no one to help him. And so he writes this letter to Timothy, and he says, hey, Timothy, find your strength in grace. While many are compromising the faith, Paul wants Timothy, hey, I want you to remain strong. And the word strengthen is an actual, it means an inward strength. It suggests a a strength of purpose, a strength of soul. Uh, It's not talking about physical strength, all right? You talk about going and working out and strengthening your muscles, but this uh, this word that's used here is more of an inward type of strength. Back in chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy of his family legacy. 
Verses 6 and 7, if you look back uh, one chapter, you can see it in verse 6 and 7. I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a self control. He goes, hey, I've given you not the, I, I, I've, I've given you this idea of a relationship with God, and it's not a spirit of fear, but it's one of power. It's one of love. Timothy probably was timid. Maybe he suffered some insecurities about leading. And so Paul writes the book of 1 Timothy about leadership and the book of 2 Timothy about a standing strong to this man. He talks about be strengthened. It reminds me back in the Old Testament where there was another change of leadership. Uh, uh, in the book of Joshua, we have Israel uh, under the new leadership of this young man named Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, it, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left. And then in verse 9, he'll say it again. Be strong and very courageous. God tells him, be strong and courageous. And, 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 and Paul says to be strong in grace. Now, the word courageous, the word courage, we said last week, is not just this lack of fear, like it's someone that, that has put aside fear and I am just dedicated and I'm strong. No, it's a resolve to stand firm whenever circumstances are starting to be threatening. Timothy needs to be reminded that, hey, others are turning away from the faith. You remain strong. Remember what you learned from your family. Remember what you learned from Paul. And so for us, reminding ourselves of what we have learned, what we know of in Christ, is a big part of the idea of being strong. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we're under spiritual attack from principalities. He goes on, principalities and spiritual darknesses and forces of evil. Because we live in a world that is antagonistic towards Christ, towards his teachings, and toward his people. Because we ourselves still have a tendency to sin and get discouraged and wander away from Christ. Be strong. But I love it. It says, be strong by the grace. See, he doesn't say be strong in your might. He doesn't say, be, he doesn't say look inward to your own ability and stand on that. Which is what... Unfortunately, many of our prosperity gospel people would teach, you are, you are strong within. No, it is not you. It's Christ. It's the grace of God. In that verse in Ephesians, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. As a matter of fact, the word strengthen is a passive word. It means that the source of strength is not in Timothy. He goes to say, Timothy, look within yourself and be strong by that. No, he's saying, hey, you don't do this. It's actually someone else who strengthens you, and it's the grace of Jesus Christ. See, the more you study Scripture, the more you see over and over and over this idea that you have to have the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace that's given, that thing that was given to us that we don't deserve. That's what strengthens us. As a matter of fact, it begins at our salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own. It's a gift of God. 
And so Christ gives us grace at salvation. By grace we have been saved. We don't deserve it, but yet he gives it to us. So it's grace to believe. It's grace to serve. He gives us grace, the ability to serve. He gives us grace to stand against uh, uh, the wrongdoings of the world. He gives us grace to overcome our weaknesses. See, the power that people have to go through trials, to go through struggle, the ability to walk through them is found in grace. Paul said in Corinthians that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. And that in that, it comes strength. See, you show me a Christian who has faced the trials of life, who carries in them this, this joy, and I show you a person that understands grace. Kent Hughes, uh, author, says this, nothing would come Timothy's way as he guarded the gospel that he would not have grace strength to handle. No person, no pain, no problem, no responsibility, no tragedy. There would be no time where he could not stand tall. And that is true for all who are in Christ and under his grace. He goes on, he says, if he calls you to do something, he will supply sufficient strength through his grace. If he calls you to step forward, he will give you the power to do so. If he calls you to step up, he will give you the fortitude. If he calls you to endure, the strength you need will be found in grace. Paul says, stand, be strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in order, how do we do this? In order to rely on God's grace, you must not put your trust in your own abilities. Don't put your trust in your own abilities. I can tell you that the most times I fall in my ministry and I fail in my ministry is when I try to do things in my own accord. When I try to do things in my own ability. It's usually during those times that God just completely uh, knocks me down to the point of reminding me who he is and who I am. And I get to the point where I'm living in such a way that, that I'm not living seeking wisdom I'm trying to do my own thing. I'm trying to, to, to uh, just make it on my own. And what I do is I find myself realizing that I do need his wisdom. I do need his grace. And it would have been so much different if I just trusted him in the first place. And I don't have all the answers to that because I'm still learning as I'm growing. Paul tells us over in the Philippians that we don't put confidence in the flesh. We don't rely on our own strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not our strength. And so Paul says, hey, I boast in my weakness so that Christ's power could be on me. And so to experience grace, you don't put your trust in your own abilities. It's recognizing that God is the one who strengthens you. Secondly, in order to rely on God's grace, you must abide in him. Abide in him. This past Friday, our small group studied 2 Peter chapter 1. And we saw that we were to be reminded of our walks with God and our identity that we have in Christ. And so often we fail because we forget that. The word abide means to remain, to be connected to. And, it, and obviously we think of John 15 where he says, abide in me and I in you. And those several times to that passage he talks about abiding. He says he's the vine and we're the branches. It means that Christ 
When we're connected to him and we remind ourselves that we're connected to him, he becomes our source, our source of strength, our source of of life, our source of nourishment, our source of, of stability. So we abide in him through grace. Third, in order to rely on God's grace, you must move forward. Now, I I told you the word strengthen is a passive verb, meaning that it comes from God, not within ourselves. However, it doesn't mean that that we as as Christians just sit back and do nothing and say, God, you do it. You're the strong one. I can't do this, so uh, I'm going to let you fight my fight. Thank you. I'm going to sit back and eat some popcorn or some chips or something. No, it, it means we don't just sit back and do nothing. 1 Corinthians 15 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul says, I worked. As a child of God, I've been tasked. I'm I'm supposed to follow him. I'm supposed to obey him. We talked about that last week. The Christian life is not just, okay, well, I got my fire insurance. I got my my relationship with God. I'm all set now. I'm going to live my own way. No, no, no. This is a new life. This is a new identity. Some of us may be reminded that, hey, this is a new thing, and now things are going to change, and now we, we start moving forward. Some people trust in God and don't work. Others work but don't really trust, and neither of them is correct. Because God gave grace. Paul works harder, he says, than anyone else. And therefore, God's grace was effective in him. And disciples of Christ, we rely on his grace, and it prompts them to faithfully walk day by day. Maybe that means that they step up to serve in a local church. Maybe they step out of their comfort zones by God's grace, and they commit. Maybe that means they, they just come to church. I know I'm speaking to the choir. You're all here, right? It means they commit to attending even when they're tired. They move forward. It means they work towards being more open and honest in their relationships. Asking for forgiveness where needed. Committing together to walk closer. See, a follower of Christ needs to have discipline. And it starts with recognizing that it requires the grace that Christ gives Secondly, another discipline of a disciple is he faithfully teaches and trains others. Look at verse 2. So Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul tells Timothy, Hey, use what I taught you when I taught you in the presence of others. Use it. Further it. Teach it to others. And they will teach it to others. And so I got to, and I asked the question, why do we go to church? Why do we go? Is it to see our friends? Is it to sing worship songs together? To hear a good message? To come away from church with a a fresh look on something? And I'm not saying those are bad things. Do you come to church, though, with this expectation of God today speak to me through your word speak to me through the music speak to me through the fellowship with others God I know who I am and I know who you are 
Use me today. Help me to gain from your word the connection to be able to tell someone else. See, Timothy was a faithful follower of Paul for a number of years, accompanied him on those missionary journeys, we said. He wrote several of those letters. You could say here that Paul, in verse 2, is really phrasing Timothy's life, summarizing Timothy's life. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These last several years, Timothy, what you heard from me, what you've seen, what you've gotten, now take it and tell others about it. Some of us have been in church for years, for decades. We've heard message after message about struggle or sin. We've heard message after message about joy or faith and hope. And so now you have the information. Now go and use them. Go and use it. Paul says to entrust to faithful men. The word entrust carries this idea of depositing something valuable for safekeeping. Okay, it's the same picture as in banks around the world. We have this uh, these safety deposit boxes, right, where the people have entrusted, okay, entrusted something valuable into these deposit boxes. Paul says, take the knowledge of God, the knowledge of your relationship, the knowledge of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and deposit it, entrust it to, put it towards faithful men. You can look at it this way, that Timothy was part of this long train of people who had been given God's word with the purpose of telling someone else. Did you notice there's four groups here? He says, what you, Timothy, have learned from me. So there's Paul teaching Timothy. And then it says, Timothy, entrust it to faithful men. There's the third one. And then it says, who will be able to teach others? There's four generations. William Barclay says this, The teacher is the link in a living change which stretches unbroken from this present moment back to Jesus Christ. And the glory of teaching is that it links the present with Christ. Because we learned it from someone before us, who learned it from someone before them, who learned it from someone before them. And I'm thankful for a legacy of someone sharing with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, but... I don't feel like sharing it today. I don't feel like going to church. I, I'm too busy to, to further it to the next generation. Parents, this morning, this is your opportunity to raise your children. You don't get a second chance. And are you teaching them to follow Christ? Are you training them to walk with Christ? People have made statements like, we are, led, we are one generation away from it stopping completely. See, we must teach and train others. We must be faithful students and teachers of the Word of God. Don't be the person that breaks that chain. Continue to pass it on. You guys remember when, you would, when emails were first coming around? Those chain emails, you know? Send this to 25 friends. Don't break the chain. And I would always go, delete. <laughs> I broke the chain. Nothing ever bad happened. Never mind. 
This is, you're passing on not an email for good luck. You're passing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're passing on eternal life. You, you can't save them. But you're passing on the message. Paul says, share it with faithful men. Wait, wait, hold on. This says, share it with faithful men. Aren't we supposed to like share it with everybody? Yes, I agree. We're supposed to share it with everyone. However, there are some people that maybe you should invest in, that you should invest more energy into. And I want to be careful here because it's, as I lead, it's becoming more clear to me in order for our church to grow, I need to be entrusting the word of God to faithful people that will continue to teach others. Because that's what Christ did. Christ ministered to multitudes of people. He had a large group of followers. But he ministered more towards 12 people. And in those 12, you can study and find that there were three that sometimes were called the close disciples, the inner circle and these three seem to be the one that Christ ministered the most to. When you're looking to entrust into others, find the faithful people. Reach out to unbelievers. Yes, go after the lost sheep. Go after them. Encourage them. Encourage them to come back to Christ, but invest the maturity of your time in training and teaching faithful people. The discipline of a disciple is to teach and to train others. And we are taught, and we take that message to other people. Third, verses 3 down to verse 6. One of the disciplines is to rely on God's goodness and grace. One of the disciplines is to faithfully teach and to train others. Number three, another discipline of a disciple is he demonstrates courage, character, and consistency. And I changed that middle word after I laid out my outline. Courage, character, and consistency. In verse 3, 4, and then uh, 3 and 4 is one, and then 5 is one, and then 6 is one. You have these three pictures that, that Paul gives when he's talking about uh, uh, disciples. And he uses these, these three illustrations of everyday people. Uh, and you could unpack a lot here. Uh, they, could be, they could be three messages in themselves. Uh, but it's talking uh, that he's telling T Timothy, hey, as you're a minister of the word, these are three examples that you can connect to. Through application for us, it teaches us, hey, how are we courageous? How do we have character and committed? Or how are we consistent? And the three pictures are a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Verse 3 and 4, we have the picture of a soldier. Look at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And the first thing I mentioned is it's the courage of a soldier. When a person becomes a believer, when they, when they, when they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, at that moment they're enlisted in a war. 1 Peter 2 says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Unsaved people are not in a war. But as soon as you get saved, you are now in a battle. 
The battle with the flesh is what Peter says. A battle with its sinful desires. Over in Ephesians, Paul says we're in a battle against principalities. We're in a battle against the devil. We're in a battle against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. We're all in a battle. We're all in a fight. Charles Spurgeon says, Paul does not exhort Timothy to be a common or ordinary soldier. But did you see what it said? Be a good soldier. A good soldier. Spurgeon goes on. He says, for all soldiers and all true soldiers, they may not be good soldiers. There are men who are just soldiers and nothing more. They only need sufficient temptation and they readily become cowardly, idle, useless, and worthless. He says, but Timothy is to be the good soldier who is the bravest of the brave, courageous at all times, zealous, and doing his duty. And of course, the question is pretty clear. What kind of soldier are you? What kind of soldier are you when you face those attacks from the flesh? When you face those attacks from Satan, are you a good soldier or just a soldier? Paul says, a good soldier shares in suffering. See, a soldier, a good soldier must be willing to suffer. As Christians, at this time frame of Paul's writing, Christians are being persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, they're, 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 uh, they're facing imprisonment. They're facing death. And many of them leave. Paul mentioned that. I already mentioned. Many of them desert him. Paul says, no. Be a good soldier. A good soldier does not sink, shrink back from suffering. People enlist in the military knowing that they may have to suffer. And maybe they've even given their life for their country. And that should be true of Christians. Be willing to suffer. But I also see with that, a good soldier stands with others. Notice he says, share in suffering. The word share, that Paul is saying, hey, don't just take this suffering alone, but stand with other people. One of the goals of the military is to take individuals and inform into them this community that's willing to suffer both for their country and one another. A brotherhood, sisterhood, if you will. Over in Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're all members of one body and we're to be dependent upon one another. Stand with others, share in that suffering. In verse 4, it talks about a good soldier focuses by avoiding distractions. Notice, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's talking about a focus. And when you study, if you go into the military, you find out a soldier heads off to basic training and then they're to serve. And what they do is they leave behind their family, their friends, perhaps their jobs, because they're focused now on serving their country. It's not that they no longer speak about those things, but their focus is on their mission. And I think the word here that we can take from that is the word entangled. A soldier who is worried or focused on home becomes a liability in the mission because he's entangled with distractions. You remember the, the story where, where Jesus would say, hey, I want people to follow me. And the guy goes, well, I would, but I married a wife. You know, the guy that held the feast, I married a wife and I can't come. I bought a field and I got to go check it out. Like people who are distracted are not going to be able to enjoy. Don't get entangled. Secondly, the character of an athlete. Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned 
unless he competes according to the rules. Isn't it interesting today that people don't want to follow the rules? Yeah, but... (laughs) No, no. See, Paul... And listen, Paul loves the illustration of an athlete. Throughout his letters, you see it all the time. He's running a race, laying aside the weights, you know, talks about being the rewards of the race, uh, getting the crown of light, you know, all of these things. I've finished the course, okay? I've, I've run the race. Here, his focus is, an athlete, he says, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In those days, the Greek culture loved this idea of competition, of games. It's where we get the Olympics from. And, and, and in those days, a participant, if he was going to be in the Greek games, he had to be a true-born Greek. He had to train for exactly 10 months. And he had to swear to that before a statue of Zeus. And then, when it got to the competition, there was a, any of the, the competitions that happened, there were these specific rules for each event. And if someone competed or did any of that, and it failed in one area, they were automatically disqualified. Paul says, the athlete crowned the one that competes according to the rules. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, you were once in darkness, now you're light. And then he says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What are the rules? What pleases God? You learn what pleases God by knowing His Word, by discerning His will through prayer, by His work in our hearts, by by the counsel of other godly people, the sovereignty of His events over our life. Basically, it's a walk daily with God, but reminding ourselves who God is and who we are. And it's an ultimate desire that I want to please God. I'm going to follow what He has established. See, sadly, many Christians want to make up their own rules. Some even talk about how my relationship with God just allows me to break the rules. Your relationship with God never gives you permission to sin. In order to be rewarded, Paul says, you have to do it according to the rules. Thirdly, we have the consistency of a farmer. Look at verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul uses a picture of a farmer, and I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, I've worked on several different farms uh, during my teenage years. Uh, I worked with animals, cows, and horses, and pigs. Uh, I worked on uh, farms of plant, like uh, fields. I worked in tobacco fields for a while. <laughs> That's North Carolina. Tobacco's a vegetable there. All right, I worked there uh, throughout my teenage years. It's something that I feel is very true of every farmer is it doesn't matter what day it is, there's always something to do. Always. As a teacher, I enjoy two weeks off at Christmas, you know. Farmers don't get that. People who have jobs might get a couple weeks off for vacation. Not farmers. Maybe they have someone who, who takes care of some stuff while they're gone, but every single day the animals have to be fed. Every single day, the plants have to be tended to. 
There's always something to do. And a good farmer, it says, is hardworking, is consistent. He gets up every day and continues the work that he starts. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Listen, one of our disciplines is that we are consistent, that we are faithfully every day walking with God. We don't just walk with Him on Sunday. We don't just walk with Him in our small group. We don't just walk with Him during a prayer time. We walk with Him every single day, faithfully. The farmer doesn't get to cancel his routine because it's raining or because he doesn't feel like it today. He has to be consistent or else his crops will fail. His animals will become malnourished. See, we have to be consistent. Because if we're not, our spiritual life becomes malnourished. A few things about a farmer. A farmer has to be patient. A farmer has to be patient because there's a lot you could say here about farming. A farmer must be patient that it takes time for plants and animals to grow. So a farmer will take plants and he will faithfully, he will water them. He will carefully cultivate them. He will remove weeds. He, he takes care of them on a daily basis. And you know what's interesting? He does that, but he cannot grow that plant one inch. He can't grow it at all. The growth only happens because God does the growing. As a matter of fact, very early on, the farmer has to be very careful He should just provide food and water and let God do the growth. He has to be patient. A disciple is patient. When he's teaching others, he can't expect full growth from other people. He should be patient and let God do the growing in that person. We should be patient and let God do the growing within us. Secondly, a farmer hopes for a future harvest. Why does a farmer do what he does? Does he do it? I'm going to plant this field full of corn because I'm hoping that tomatoes come. No, I'm planting it because what? he wants corn. He hopes in that harvest. I'm going to do the work now hoping that something will come from it. And that's what keeps him motivated during those mundane tasks. Do you realize most of the Christian life is being faithful in the mundane the life of a farmer doesn't have a harvest year-round. Mostly, it's, it's the mundane task. He breaks up the ground. He sows the seeds. He's waiting. He's watering. But it's that hope of the harvest that keeps him going. Spiritually speaking, that's us. We have the hope for a future harvest. It's experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Fully grown. Fully matured. That's the overwhelming joy of seeing Christ face to face, or to see someone come to Christ, the harvest of a soul, if you will. See, a good disciple of Christ is one who has courage like a soldier, who has character like an athlete, and consistency like a farmer. Lastly, a discipline of a disciple is one who seeks to understand and use the word. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. In everything. Think about what I just said. 
The word think means to consider or to ponder or to mull over. It's an imperative word. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, if you have a chance, think about this. He's saying, no, think about what I just told you. This is a strong admonition from Paul. Think over, and God will give you understanding. So we seek to understand and use the word. How do we do that? Psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But notice, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditates is what we're referring to here. That word meditates is a word that literally speaks of a, chow, a cow chewing his cud. It's the word that means digest. To get every single nutrient that you can from a plant. And in this regard, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, on that word of God, he meditates. He says, God, I want to study your word in such a way that I want to get nourished from it. But I want to seek to get every single bit of teaching I can from it. Meditate on the scriptures. And we rely on them. Psalm 119 says, in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things. I read the Bible, Pastor, and I don't get anything from it. Are you praying? Are you asking God, God, show me today. Open my eyes. I'm relying on you, God. I don't just meditate on your word, but I'm going to you for help. I'm going to you for wisdom. I'm going to you for guidance. Paul says, think about what I said. The Lord will give you understanding. A disciple is a follower, is a learner. A good disciple is one that we would call disciplined. And actually, in the word disciplined, you see the word disciple. And this morning, are you being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Or are you focused on your own strength? Are you entrusting to others? Are you faithfully teaching and training other people? Oh, that's the pastor's job. It's every Christian's job to continue the chain, to continue the link to the next generation. Are you courageous like a soldier? Do you have the character and commitment of an athlete? Are you consistent like a hardworking farmer? If not, you can make changes. Lastly, are you meditating on the Word of God and relying on His understanding? See, disciplines take time to become habit. It takes one step after another. New Year's resolutions, we've already broken them, right? (laughs) Because they're not habits. Every single day, take one step. Take one step. Determine to discipline yourself this year. And by the end, you look back and you will be amazed at what is now a habit because you have the disciplines of a disciple. Let's pray. God, this morning we are humbled. God, you have given us these instructions, these rules. We don't like to talk about rules. 
Like, God, they're here, right here in front of us. I don't know what different families are facing, what different individuals are going through. But God, each one of us should commit ourselves to being faithful disciples of you, faithful followers, learning, and in turn, teaching others. God, I pray that you would encourage us today, that we would take this passage, Lord, and and meditate on it this week, that maybe we would take a verse each day over this week, and we would just focus and think about and digest the truths found in it. God, I pray that your will would continue to be done. God, protect us from the attacks of Satan. But those of us this week who will face that, Lord, I pray for strength to stand. Strength to stand in grace. Knowing that you are so much stronger than anything the devil has to throw at us. We love you. And it's only because you first loved us. And we look forward to your return. It is in your precious holy name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers, if they would, to prepare uh, here in our church every month. We take a few moments and remember.